It's Tuesday, September 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy September. Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle, yes. I realize it's been September for a while. I just right. haven't been here for we a while. We haven't been in, yeah, I guess when was the last? Well, there you was had Strategy it. Week. Strategy Week, yeah. It was like the 20th of August. Has anything happened in the market in the last few weeks? No. <laughs> Smooth sailing. Nothing. It's, it's uh, all been smooth. Nothing at all. It was calm just waters. If you've of, if you've ever seen a lake first thing in the morning <laughs> and it's just smooth as glass, that's what the market has been. No, it for is the last not. few weeks, it um, has not. Though I think so. While you were gone, we did some fun periscopes with uh, Allison and uh, Maddie on the Motley Fool Periscope feed, sort of to kind of help fill the void of, of people. I know that you were missing market foolery, you know, while while we were gone, listeners out there. Um, and so we were able to fill the void a little bit at least um in you know it was kind of a nutty time. It was kind of a nutty time, and we've got some uh, listener emails that sort of reflect that. Yeah. Um, there's not there's not a ton happening in, in the news today uh, in terms of specific companies. So let's dip into the full mailbag. Radio at fool.com is our email address, and let's start with one from Tim Chalik, who writes: In a downturn like we have had, how do you decide when to add to a position? I have some positions that have done well, such as Walt Disney, that still look expensive even with the pullback. I also have positions like Apple that always seem cheap, but now seems even cheaper. When everything has taken a 10% haircut, it all looks good. So, how do you decide what to add to? It's a great question because let's face it, I think a lot of investors experience that very thing where it's, it, it was an even. 10-15% cut across the top of a lot of holdings. Sure thing. And um and I mean that is it, it's it's something I, I sort of encountered as well. I mean we came in into uh work on that Monday a couple of weeks ago and I mean it, it was it was it was nuts. And so I mean Maddie Argersinger had had uh, sort of you know chimed in on the Slack channel the night before saying hey this could be kind of a kind of a crazy day. Let's let's keep our uh, let's keep our radar uh, up for any ideas that you know that we may want to add to a million dollar portfolio. And ultimately, we did uh, come out with four uh, trade recommendations that day for MDP uh, members. And you know that isn't the easiest thing to do. We had three of them where we added to positions, and then a fourth which was a new position. And I think in that case, you know these were positions that we bought initially with the hope of adding to uh, on on any kind of weakness so they were small positions from the start and, and we wanted to add to them sort of opportunistically and that's what we did um, I think the first thing you have to be able to do is is you have to have sort of a, a point of reference I think that's where the watch list really comes into play and so even 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 a watch list of holdings that you already own like it doesn't have to be just a stock that you you've bought this stock and now it's no longer on your watch list keep your watch list up to date with with those ideas that you really want to add to because um, I I think honestly one of the most difficult things for investors to do these days is to be able to kind of add to a stock on the way up I think that the the perception out there is at least that you've bought shares of a company and a year later the stock has done well and you've doubled your money well you can't add to that position because the stock is already you've already missed the boat and and that honestly I mean that to me is probably one of the greatest lessons I've learned from David Gardner since since I've been here uh, is is to be able to add to your winners I mean it's it's something that I think a lot of a lot of people out there sort of shun that um, but but it's it's a really fun thing to be able to do because they're winning typically for a reason they're doing well uh, 
you have to look at how much exposure you have to all of these companies. Don't I mean you don't want to add to a position that maybe you're already you know, you know overweight in. So I mean take take you know have an understanding of sort of your your allocation goals, how diversified you want to be. You know, have you do you have the the total number of, of stocks in your portfolio that you're really comfortable with? If not, consider adding adding something new. Um, but but no, I don't think it's one. It's not a question that's easily answered. There's not a standard answer for every for every uh, situation, right? And I think you also need to. And I, I agree completely about the watch list. I think you also need to take a moment and sort of look at if if say for example you're looking at three stocks in your portfolio and they've all gotten ten percent haircuts and then you're thinking, okay, well, what do I want to add to? Take a moment and look back at the last few years, particularly in moments like this where we we are in year six of a bull market, and look at the run your stock has each stock has had, because I would say, and he mentions Disney. I mean, Disney is a stock I own. It it was at one twenty a month ago. Now it's just you know just over a hundred. Yeah. At no point did I consider adding to Disney. That's just me. Right. But part of that is because I look at the run it's had, and I and while I'm very uh, comfortable holding the shares that I own right now for the next you know 10 20 years I don't look at that as necessarily uh, I don't look at those years as being um, a repeat of what we've just gone through I forget who it was it was it was someone uh, here at the fool had tweeted out recently basically comparing like when you look at Disney keep in mind from from 1998 to 2008 that stock did almost nothing. Yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's something that uh, I think a lot of people have sort of left Disney for dead more or less because yeah, it it hadn't done a whole heck of a lot, and and then I mean you see sort of the fruits of their labor and these acquisitions with you know Marvel and Pixar and, and now Lucasfilm and really all the hype with Star Wars, and and so yeah, I think it's a great idea to look back and see kind of what the stock has done uh, over over the recent past, and, and and certainly you know pay attention to how big the company is, and I, I'm glad that. Uh, I'm glad that they use Apple as an example here because you have a position in Apple. It always seems cheap, but now it seems even cheaper. And and let's remember, I mean, Apple is a huge company, and as these companies get bigger, it's the biggest, right? Company. I mean, it's yeah. And so I mean, as they get bigger, they, the stocks are going to look cheaper because the growth simply isn't going to be there that that once was. And so I think. You know, understanding cheap. Uh, just be careful. You know, qualifying something as cheap because even if it looks cheap, it may not necessarily really be cheap. I mean, it, it just—it's all rel- relative to the growth prospects that the company has. Uh, you know, in in the coming in the coming years. And as we know, the market is always forward-looking. It's looking at what's coming down the pipe here. And, and with Apple, this is primarily still a phone story. I mean, you know, maybe there's something that comes with a watch one day. Maybe Apple Music takes off. Who knows? I mean, they've got a big TV thing coming out too. Uh, but, but you know, I, I think somebody looks at Apple and says it looks cheap today. Maybe, but I don't necessarily think it is. It's just a really big company at this point. Question from John Burney in the UK, who writes: Is it better to diversify your stocks based on the sector that the business is based in? That's certainly. I think the traditional way people think about diversifying their portfolio. Well, I've got some retail companies, I've got some energy holdings, I've got a little healthcare, I've got some industrial. So certainly that's the that's the way I first thought about it. But how do you think about it? Well, I think that is that is the way most people have thought about it for the longest time. 
and inappropriately so. I mean, you want to understand sort of what market your money is in. Uh, the thing that the the thing that has changed, I think, here over the past couple of decades, really, you know, with the advent of the internet and with sort of the way the world has become smaller. Um, is is it's much more now a global economy than ever before, and and so beyond just understanding sectors, I mean, we need to really understand sort of the geographical sort of allocation of your portfolio as well. You want to make sure that you're not, you know, overexposed to any one particular uh, country or region, so to speak. Um, you know, you look at look at a company. You can use Apple as, as an example again. Um, that today it generates uh, more than twenty percent of its operating profit from China. So it's an American-based, U.S.-based company, obviously. But but there is plenty of geographical expo- geographical exposure beyond just the United States. And and so you know you look at I think not only the market. I think you want to look at geography. And and then you know even another way to look at it the way we look at it MDP for example and I think this is just for for people to at least think about you know this way because you know our mandate in MDP is to find the best ideas in our foolish services so we're looking through stock advisor hidden gems income investor inside value and rule breakers and and bringing the ideas that have already been recommended there so we're kind of looking beyond just market and. Geography in in sort of uh, you know looking at strategy as well. So we allocate uh, one of six you know in one of six buckets. We have the David strategy, which is sort of the rule breakers and, and stock advisor team David stocks. We have the Tom strategy, which is more the hidden gem stock advisor team Tom stocks. We have growth, which is primarily rule breakers. Value, which is inside value. Dividend, which is income investor, and then small cap from hidden gems. And so we're looking to kind of give ourselves exposure to all six of those buckets. And and ultimately, and one thing I like is, you know, we're not always trying to rebalance the portfolio so we're never overexposed. We actually are kind of excited about the prospect of buying into a company and then having that grow into an outsized position in our portfolio, right? I mean, if if you buy shares of a company that you know over the course of five years it doubles, triples, quadruples, or more. Well, hey, that's great. I don't necessarily want to pair that position back because it's doing really well. And so that's what we call. You know, kind of a nice way of getting unbalanced. You're getting unbalanced for a reason. But I, I, there's, there is, I, you, there's a lot more to consider now than just market. I think you you need to look at the market sector. You need to look at geography, and then you also need to look at your strategy and, and what stage of life you, you're sort of in as an investor. You can also look at risk factor as well. I mean, yeah. another and and there's, I don't think there needs to be any one particular way to view your portfolio you can you can view it few through a few different screens one can be sector one can be risk and just thinking okay here are sort of the stable regardless of industry here are the stable yeah. dividend payers they're you know Johnson and Johnson's not going anywhere Exxon Mobil's not going anywhere they're going to be fine they're going to keep paying that dividend that's that's going to be stable and then you can look at the more rule breaker type Growth stocks, and you can find those in any industry. Yeah, and I mean, it's also you know, every investor is going to have sort of their own definition, really, of risk. I mean, risk for one person might not be the same for another. My my version of risk, my idea of risk, is probably going to be different than you know the seventy year old who is focused more on protecting uh, his or her wealth. Whereas you know I'm not quite seventy yet, Chris, and not I'm still quite. looking to grow my wealth. Um, and so yeah, I mean, defining risk, understanding is it something where you're talking about the permanent loss of capital, or is it something where it's just simply volatility um, and, and how much you can handle? And I think every every investor's threshold is certainly different. 
one of the things I like about John's question is it reminded me of uh, our colleague Christine Hargis when she was in here a few weeks back, and we were talking about healthcare. And I can't remember if she said this on the podcast or just uh, before or after taping, but she she made the comment about how, and she's a she's a young investor. She's in her twenties, but she made the, the comment that she recognizes she is incredibly overweight in her portfolio. In terms of the healthcare industry, because it's yeah. the industry she knows the best, and it's one of the it's it, it's a little bit of a struggle for her. She says, "I know I should be looking outside healthcare because I've got so much healthcare in my portfolio, but it's also the place I know the best." And, and there's nothing actually wrong with that either. I mean, when you think about healthcare, I mean, healthcare is one of those markets that's always going to be around. And so I think even in healthcare, you you and, and I'm not recommending for someone to go out there and just do this, but I mean, I, I think there's at least an argument to be made there because. There's so many different ways to play healthcare, from right. like these large healthcare insurers to device makers to little biofarms, and so in uh, all of this stuff in between, and it is all over the world. And so, I mean, another good example I think is in energy, and particularly in oil and natural gas right now. Um, it, oil and natural gas stocks are getting hammered because of oil prices and this glut of supply on the market. Uh, you know, there are some potential catalysts on the horizon that could keep oil prices down for a little while. There, there's also the potential out there that uh, OPEC could try to tighten up supply and, and push those oil prices back up, but we've certainly uh, sort we, we've we've increased our exposure to, to oil and, and natural gas related stocks in the MDP, for example, because we see that as an excellent opportunity. So we may have a bit more exposure than normal, uh, but that is with the goal of being opportunistic. And down the road, we would certainly pull back in that, as we know that you know energy is typically very cyclical. Um, healthcare, you know, not so cyclical. I mean, it's always going to relatively be in demand. Question from Stephen Chavez in California. When researching a company, how much time do you invest before deciding it's not for you? Do you stop at the annual report and or the 10K? Great question. I don't think we've ever gotten that question before. <laughs> and um, I'm curious at what point you stop. I'll just say, I stop well before I get to the annual report. <laughs> well, well before I get to the annual report. I will, if I'm researching different stock ideas, I don't think I've ever gotten to the annual report before deciding, ah, this one's not for me. And so, I mean, let me go ahead and ask you then. I mean, like, what is it that makes you say, nah, this isn't for me? Uh, gosh, it, it and it doesn't have to be just one thing. It could be no. You know, it's it, it's never one thing all along. Um, it's uh, sometimes it's the sleep factor. So sometimes I'll start looking into a stock and I will realize in the research process I don't really understand this business to the comfort level that I need. So yep. I'm this may be a great stock for someone's portfolio but not for mine. So sometimes it's a sleep factor. Uh, sometimes it just simply has to do with management, yeah. uh, which is something I have started to look at more and more, I would say over the last 6 to 10 years I place a greater emphasis on on management. And so that can be anything from questions around the age of the management and by that I mean this is a well-run company and the people running it are not going to be around so much longer, and right. so I, I I need to know who's going to be sitting in the corner office before I jump in. Yeah, I want to know what a succession plan is, and I mean I think all of those 
uh, are are excellent answers. I mean, I, th- I think that again, this is going to be something that is going to it's going to depend on the individual. You'll see a lot of the same sorts of answers, though. I care about management. I want to be able to understand what it does. Um, you know, I don't want to lose any sleep at night. I think for for each investor, it's very important for you to number one come up with an actual investing philosophy. And and this this is where you can be really creative, and you get to basically list out how you invest. You know, talk about the things that matter to you as an investor, and then once you have sort of that idea down, sort of your investing philosophy, the next thing you can do is to determine your list of disqualifiers. And and just speaking from an analyst perspective, and one of the things we learned very early on here uh, through our analyst development program is to come up with that list of disqualifiers because there's nothing more frustrating than putting you know a full day worth of research into a company to then just say, nah, this this isn't going to be for me. I'm just going to you know forego all this research and, and just you know pass on the idea because chances are, the more time you sink into into researching a company. Even if it's not the greatest idea in the world, you start sort of figuring out ways to justify it in your mind. Well, maybe this could be better. Maybe this will change or whatever. So come up with that list of disqualifiers, whatever those disqualifiers may be. If it's a, if it's a business that you don't understand, if you you feel like management isn't quite on the level, uh, if you feel like this is a market that you don't really believe in, and it's, I mean, I'll just use tobacco companies as, as an example. I mean, for me personally, and, and I mean, I I. Don't begrudge anybody their right to smoke, and I enjoy a good cigar every now and then, but I don't want to invest in a tobacco company. So I know for me, I'm not going to be looking at that really as sort of my ideal market. Now, that's not to say that you, you know, don't invest in funds that may, you know, hold shares in, in a tobacco company. I mean, it depends on how granular you want to get. And I think that you also have to be a little bit careful there to get on your high horse and, and, and don't, you know, preach too much about what you believe in because it, it bears remembering that you probably are invested in funds that own companies that you may not necessarily fully support. But again, I mean, I think coming up with that list of disqualifiers so that you can kind of run through that list real quickly. I mean, it can take you maybe an hour, but if you can find enough disqualifiers for you to go ahead and say, no, this isn't really going to be for me. Maybe it's just not a robust market opportunity. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's maybe it's a, a Chinese small cap. You know, I mean, but I think we we learned a lot about Chinese small caps over the over the past few years, and that's that's become, I think, a disqualifier for a number of people. So finding that list of disqualifiers. Figuring out how to kind of hit that list first on, uh, and then you know, then you can kind of proceed forward. And if you've not really found that that disqualifier yet, then then I think you know, chances are from there you can kind of continue researching. It's it's a great point about the sunk cost of research because yeah. you can absolutely find yourself in a position where you think, well, but. But you if know, if they just do this, if they just do this, or if they just change this one thing, or all they have to do is blank, and it's right, right. there, and I see it, and why don't they see it? I, to that point, I am curious not to pull back the curtain too much on the the MDP team, and I'm not asking you to name names or anything like that, or talk out of school. We can name names, but I'm gonna throw somebody under the bus. But, <laughs> but I am curious: are there are there times when you guys are pitching stock ideas around when? Someone says to you, "I think you're a little too close to this. I think I, uh, you're not seeing the flaws, or you're trying to make excuses." I, I get you've done a lot of research on this one, Jason, but I think this just ain't the time for this stock. Yeah, and I think that's uh, you know, for us that that is number one. That's our job as a team is to really challenge each other, and I think you know, as investors, you if you 
aren't careful, if you if you're concerned about having your feelings hurt, then maybe you're in the wrong business. Because the first, the, the best quality you can have as an investor is humility. Understand the fact that you're going to get it wrong. Sometimes you're just going to get it wrong. And in the quicker you come to that realization, I think the more that frees you up to be able to accept that. If for some reason maybe you're a bit close to you know a particular idea, or maybe if you uh, you know, feel strongly about a certain market. Our our team's job is to challenge each other and to come up with poke holes in in the idea, and then come up with ways to sort of plug those holes. For example, uh, and I think you know this is a really interesting question. Is is one that we always talk about in meeting management? And do you want to actually meet the management team of of businesses in which you invest? And you can come up with strong answers for both cases, yes and no. Um, you know, the the biggest problem I see with with uh, many people is, and I, I myself certainly have fallen in this trap as well, is when you meet management and then you really feel like, man, they've just painted this rosy picture. And and let's be frank, I mean that's their job, right? You're not going to meet them, and they're not they're not going to say, yeah, our company kind of sucks, really. You don't want to <laughs> buy our stock. It's they're not going to say that. Their right. job is to paint the rosiest picture possible. But you walk away from that connection. With uh, you know personal feelings, you you feel a little bit more optimistic about the idea or whatever, and so you know I I don't know exactly where I fall. Sometimes I like meeting management, but but really in all honesty, it's it's probably better to keep some healthy distance so that you don't get that personal connection, or at least you know know yourself as an investor well enough to be able to sort of check. You know, have some sort of checks and balances there because when you do meet management, they're going to paint a rosy picture, and you're going to need to be able to kind of see past that. Um, and that's really our job as a team because we are serving our members, and I think we do a pretty good job of it. Um, we've all five really enjoyed working together, and and we we you know we we check our emotions at the door. So to speak, and that's you know that's one of the investing uh, the stock advisor way principles. As a matter of fact, is check your emotions at the door. Don't get emotional. Understand you're going to get some wrong, and if, if you can have someone to bounce ideas off of, they can sort of you know play devil's advocate there. And I think that's really that's a that's a nice thing to have. It's one of the many great investing lessons that we all learned when we saw the movie Wall Street. Oh, <laughs> never get emotional about stocks. What a great movie! Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations. For against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.